Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism. Uh, As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I want to apologize for missing last week's show. I was not feeling well at all, uh, but I am back. And as promised, we are going to talk about some great women and some issues that are connected to women this week. Um, because, but I do want to actually start with something else first. I just want to take a quick minute to, um, do a small memoriam for Ed Russell. Uh, Ed Russell passed away, uh, this past Saturday. Uh, he was 57. He died of complications of multiple sclerosis. And, um, he was one of the founding members of, uh, Valley Free Radio and um, he was just a great man. And he actually used to call in to this show sometimes um, afterwards to chat with me about stories that I had uh, been talking about. And so I'm really going to miss that because it was really nice. And um, I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge uh, his work and his life. Um, he was instrumental in uh, bringing uh, Democracy Now! to the Valley and um, was really well-known and well-loved in the Valley, and uh, he will be missed. Okay, so now that we've done that, let us get into this week's uh, program. And so I wanted to start out with something that touches on both Women's History Month and on the year of the periodic table, which this is also, in case you didn't know, uh, I think I've mentioned it, the year of the periodic table. Um, and of course, you know, the periodic table is very cool and uh, very important. So we should definitely talk about it. Now, you've probably all heard of Marie Curie uh, before. She's often considered one of the few sort of acceptable women to really talk about in science. Uh, basically, her discoveries were so important uh, that she's often pointed out to as a sign that, see, women aren't excluded from science. We totally let Marie Curie be part of our party. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that partially that's because she was really, really instrumental in some things that you can't really, uh, you know say she wasn't incredible and important about. Uh, So I don't want to spend time on her tonight because hopefully you know a fair amount about her. Uh, So I want to talk about another woman who also worked with her husband, uh, but who is much less well known outside of chemistry and did not have the same career success as Curie. And so tonight I want to start out uh, with a uh, vignette about Ida Nodak. She was born in 1896 and died in 1978. And along with her husband, Walter, Nodak discovered element 75 of the periodic table, uh, which they named uh, Runium, in 1925. The couple may also have discovered element 43, but there is some dispute as to who was the first to find this element. Uh, And so these elements are actually listed vertically on the periodic table. So um, they are sort of stacked. Now, during the end of the 19th and the early 20th centuries, there was a really, there was a crazy sort of fierce competition amongst the scientific community to to discover new elements in the periodic table, which is why there's still a lot of dispute about who actually came up with element 43, because there were so many people working on things at the time and nobody wanted to um, withdraw their particular claim at it. And so uh, there's actually still a lot of controversy about some of these things. Uh, So she was born Ida Tuck, uh, and she had wanted to be a physicist, uh, but due to the lack of women in the field, uh, she ended up becoming a chemist. Now, of course, this suited her father, who was a manufacturer of uh, lacquers or paints uh, in Lockhausen, Germany. Um, So she was German. Now, she was one of the first female graduates of the Technical University in Berlin. Uh, They had 
pretty much, I think, just the year before maybe started allowing women in, maybe a couple of years before. Uh, In 1921, at the age of 25, she received her doctorate and began working in industry, uh, but she soon decided to move into research. She started at the Physikklatsch Technischen Reichsanstalt in Berlin, which was a uh, a big famous um, research laboratory uh, where her future husband, Walter, was actually working. And so she actually quit her job, her paying job in industry, to go here and work as an unpaid collaborator. Uh, and so because she was really interested in that work rather than what she'd been doing in industry. And so uh, they ended up getting married in 1926. And it turns out oddly that Ida was kind of lucky to have been considered an unpaid collaborator, even though that seems very odd to our sort of modern sensibilities, uh, because a law in 1932 required married women to give up their jobs, uh, basically because there was a financial crisis uh, that had followed the uh, stock market crash of 1929. And so there weren't enough jobs for everybody. And so basically, uh, Germany's uh, sort of solution to this was to force women to give up their jobs and become homemakers. Um, but of course, she t- wasn't technically employed. So she didn't have to give up her job because it wasn't technically a job. <laughs> Oh, dear. Some of the things that women have had to do uh, and still have to do today are uh, very, very distressing. Anyways, now the two worked very closely together. It's basically impossible to tease out who did what specifically in their lab. Um, They clearly worked as equals. Uh, I was reading a paper that someone had written um, about her, which is basically sort of the gist of the paper is we haven't spent enough time looking at her, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of part of the reason why I chose to talk about her tonight. Um, and so, for instance, there was a paper that uh, had Walter's name on it, but was clearly written by um, Ida in because he was busy doing something else at the time. So they were clearly uh, sort of co-equal collaborators. And uh, so in 1925, she was the first woman to give a major address to the Society of German Chemists. Now, uh, the Nodaks were actually considered several times for a Nobel Prize uh, between 1932 and 1937. However, of course, this was a tumultuous time. Uh, so though never uh, considered to have been members of the Nazi party itself, uh, it was suspected, it's suspected today that political situation, the political situation in Germany was basically too complicated. Nobody wanted to give an award so prestigious, basically to any German scientist at the time, um, especially those who had benefited, no matter uh, how willingly or in any small way from the war. Uh, so, um, it actually turns out that at one point, Walter moved to a new university and got a new position uh, because the previous person who had been in that position had been a Jewish professor. Um, and so even though he may not have been in the party, he still in some way, you know, benefited from that. So, you know, not necessarily without any kind of complicity, but there was never any, um, there's never been any proof to suggest that they were actively interested in the, um, sort of philosophy and policies of the party itself. Uh, and so they were actually noteworthy because they were able to determine that the missing element would be more like their horizontal neighbors rather than their vertical neighbors, as had been previously believed by other scientists. And so at the top of that vertical stack is manganese. And so previous scientists had looked for these elements in manganese ores. Uh, But instead, the um, Nodax looked for the elements in ores containing molybdenum, tungsten, ruthenium, and osmium. And so they found the missing element in June of 1925 in a sample of Norwegian columbite. They named the element 
uh, Ruenium in honor of the Rhine River. Uh, and so that is very cool in and of itself to have the honor of having found at least one uh, element on the periodic table is a pretty big deal. Like that's a, that's a pretty good feather in your cap. But what truly made Ida Nodak special uh, and why she's such a good entry for a list of female scientists you probably don't know but should is that she was actually one of the first people to conceive of and write about uh, in a scientific paper the idea of nuclear fission. Uh, but unfortunately, her ideas were discounted and only later confirmed by others. So in a paper discussing the work of Enrico Fermi in 1933, she wrote, When heavy, heavy nuclei are bombarded by neutrons, it would be reasonable to conceive that they break down into numerous large fragments, which are isotopes of known elements, but are not neighbors of the bombarded elements. Now, interestingly, it was actually Lise Meitner, uh, another woman who was slighted uh, by both her time and geography, uh, having had to actually flee Nazi Germany, who would eventually explain the reality of nuclear fission in 1939. Um, and so unfortunately, this controversy, uh, the fact that basically for several years, no one actually believed that uranium could be split into two fragments, uh, tainted Nodak's career. And so she really felt like she uh, suffered for that. Prominent scientists such as Fermi and Otto Hahn uh, both dismissed her conclusions, again, until Meitner finally described the process years later um, when she was working with Hahn. Now, after the war, um, both Ida and her husband struggled to find work, again, despite being cleared of any sort of Nazi collaboration. And of course, they have also struggled to find their place in history. Many other ideas that Ida had uh, have not been properly studied by modern uh, historians of science, and hopefully her name will someday be more prominent in our history, especially of the, of the uh, periodic table and uh, nuclear fission, because no matter how uh, tainted she might seem by her time, she was still the first person to come up with the idea of nuclear fission. And she definitely wasn't, you know, ser wasn't seriously interested in um, the, the Nazi issues of her time. So if anybody's worried about that, I think that, you know, we can be safe in saying that from everything that I read, I looked at, you know, several things, um, different papers and different uh, biographical notes and all of them seem to think that, you know, they were just basically scientists trying to do science. And of course, you know, there can be arguments about whether or not scientists should be doing more than just being scientists. But um, I think that, you know, she does deserve her due. Okay, so let us now uh, move on from... Uh, chemistry slash uh, physics. And let us talk about a different subject. Let's talk about computing. Now, this particular subject was brought to my mind in a recent tweet from the infamous, as far as I'm concerned, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, if you're not familiar, um, and if you're not familiar, you probably should probably want to stay that way. <laughs> He's a Canadian psychologist who has made quite a name for himself as, for instance, a champion against the rights of people to claim their own pronouns. Uh, he has created a following of angry, disaffected young men whom he counsels uh, that basically if they just act like alpha males or lobsters. There's a whole thing about lobsters. Um, I don't understand it. I don't think you will either. Um, that if they can just do that, they'll be fine in life. Um, he thinks that women are the problem in most situations. Um, he's made statements like he believes that women shouldn't be able to wear makeup uh, in the workplace um, and other really interesting things. Um but uh, I find him to generally be the sort of intellectual who really likes to hear himself talk, but generally has little of substance to say. 
Now, I will fully admit that this particular sketch of him is highly biased, uh, but given the fact that this tweet is so incredibly dismissive of women, I'm not inclined to be particularly more generous. And so basically, he was commenting on a story about women in tech, which says, you know, there's a complicated reason, there's a bunch of complicated reasons for why women don't go into tech these days. Um, And so his tweet reads, The reasons for this lack of interest in employment figures range from peer pressure to a lack of role models. No, the primary reason for this, as the data show, is that women are more interested in people than things. The causes do not appear social. Now, the first part of that quote is from the actual article, whereas everything from no on is Peterson's supposed rebuttal. So according to him, the reason that women don't go into tech is that they're more interested in people than things, that the causes are not social, that there isn't a social construct that has made it extremely hard for women to get into the uh, tech industry, for instance. So let's spend some time completely and utterly deconstructing and destroying that idea. I would love for Jordan Peterson to tell the amazing pioneering women of computer science that they should have been more interested in people than things, especially the amazing women of color who've had to fight against both sexism and racism to do their amazing works. I hope that you've all seen the movie Hidden Figures, which despite some narrative flaws, please, Hollywood, stop the use of of the white savior trope in all of your films. We didn't need Kevin Costner as a white savior in that movie. But anyways, uh, despite that, this film really did showcase the amazing work of women such as Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn, uh, all of who, I, who I've talked about before, especially Katherine Johnson, just phenomenally amazing woman, um, did amazing work her whole life, was just so brilliant and amazing. And, you know, to tell these women that, uh, you know, they were in the wrong profession just seems ridiculous. Uh, these three women all created greatly, contributed greatly to the early work on computers. It was only later that women were pushed to the periphery of this field. And so initially, such work was considered clerical, and thus the obvious domain of women. And so the history of this is actually really fascinating, uh, though also kind of highly depressing, obviously. Uh, My favorite tidbit that I found was that in the UK, the forcing of women out of the field actually put the entire country behind in computing. It was that was so ingrained into the social fabric that, you know, once somebody figured out that this was a, you know, thing of the future, that men should be in charge of it, that they actually scuttled their entire industry. Not only were the male recruits often less qualified, they frequently left the field because they viewed it as an unmanly profession. A shortage of programmers forced the UK government to consolidate its computers in a handful of centers with the remaining coders. It also meant the government demanded gigantic mainframes and ignored more distributed systems of midsize and mini computers, which had become more common by the 1960s, wrote Christopher Mims in an article for the Wall Street Journal. Now, other notable early women programmers were Grace Hopper and Margaret Hamilton. Margaret Hamilton led the coding team for the Apollo 11 Path to the Moon. Hopper would go on to be an admiral in the Navy, created a program to model the impact uh, or possible impact of atomic bombs. She actually found the first quote unquote bug in the system, which was literally a moth trapped in a relay wire. <laughs> that is why you say that there is a bug in, a, in, the, in the system or there is a bug in your program. It's because there, the first instance was a literal bug in the literal uh, works of the computer. So what happened? Because the field expanded so rapidly, software companies turned to psychologists to create an aptitude test to look for optimal programmers. 
William Cannon and Dallas Perry created the profile by interviewing 1,400 engineers, 1,200 of whom were men. Unsurprisingly, the result the resulting paper suggested that the ideal programmer was an introvert who was not empathetic. Sounds awfully familiar to today's stereotypes of the typical nerd, huh? Now, because the company that they worked for, Systems Development Corp., held sway in the sector at that time, it basically became a self-fulfilling prophecy that men would come to dominate the field. Because the hiring process favored men, they became overrepresented, which led to a stereotype developing that men are better at programming. And so the number of women earning computer science degrees has steadily declined from a high in 1984 of 36% to today's somewhere around 18%. And so they also cultivated a belief that the ideal programmer is an, is an innate genius rather than someone who works hard and is well-trained. And again, since the idea of innate genius is also generally tied to men, this too has contributed to the problem. And so in the U.S. today, 80% of software engineers are male. To add to this already large pile of reasons women have avoided the industry is the actual sexism, uh, the actual overt sexism that has been present in the field. Beginning in 1973 at the University of Southern California, entry-level comp sci courses used a nude image of Playboy centerfold model Elena Soderberg as the template for lessons in how to convert images into digital bits, basically creating the original JPEGs. The practice spread worldwide and the model was dubbed, quote, the first lady of the internet, a title she probably reportedly held through 2015, according to Emma Goldberg, writing for the Washington Post. And so, yeah. Uh, recent stories, of course, also uh, from Silicon Valley these days don't help much. They don't offer much hope for the landscape to change anytime soon, at least here in America. Um, the only sort of silver lining is that a lot of tech jobs have moved to India, where, oddly enough, the uh, gender balance is actually better. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really kind of, it's very disappointing and depressing that uh, the fact that, uh, you know, more women in India are interested in programming than in America, where we tend to think of, uh, you know, India is a much more patriarchal society than ours. That's just shows sort of the level of um, just systematic <laughs> oppression that has been baked into the current system of um, tech, the tech industry in America. Um, you know, and there are some efforts to sort of wrench the industry out of its uh you know, male-dominated uh, craziness. Uh, there is, there are initiatives like the uh, Girls Who Code initiative, which is very cool. Um, and there's also, uh, I was reading about a sort of more fringe collective of cyber feminists uh, who I had no idea. I'm so excited about the idea of cyber feminists. Um, and so uh, there is a sort of group of women who um, are out there trying to basically create technologies that actually subvert the dominant patriarchal system. Um, but, you know, the fact that I've just heard of them while researching for this week's story tells you, you know, how well they're doing with that right now. So, but there is one shining uh, thing that we can get out of this, which is that Jordan Peterson is wrong. <laughs> so yes, uh, the answer to your question is no, Jordan Peterson. It is not at all because women like people more than things. It's that they were pushed out by people who like things more than people. <sighs> All right, so it is about half past, so let us uh, take a little break now, and then we're going to talk 
come back and talk about another uh, really interesting scientist of color that you've probably never heard of, um, Adriana Ocampo. So yeah, hang on for just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. And we are back. Okay, so um, I promised we were going to talk about yet another amazing woman. So Adriana Ocampo was born in 1955 in Colombia. Uh, she was raised for a while in Argentina, and then her family moved to the United States when she was 15. Now, she had a love of space from an early age. She notes in an interview that she would look at the stars from the roof of her house, 
that she made spacecraft with her pots and with the pots and pans from her mom's kitchen, uh, that she would dress her doll up as an astronaut and her dog Taurus uh, as co-pilot. And uh, yeah, she just was totally, um, absolutely in love with space as a kid and actually managed to, uh, you know, grow up to be interested be involved in uh, space exploration. Now, she didn't become an astronaut, but she did become a very important and cool uh, astrogeologist. Now, she started out as a volunteer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, well, still in high school, in fact, uh, and she later became an employee there uh, while studying at college. She earned her Master's of Science degree in Planetary Geology from California State University in Northridge in 1997 while working full-time as a research scientist at JPL. Uh, she earned her PhD from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Now, she is currently a program executive for NASA. She's worked on several space probes, including uh, Galileo, New Horizons, and Juno. In 2016, uh, she was named the National Hispanic Scientist of the Year uh, by the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, Florida. And one of the really cool things that she is known for, one of her the things that her prominence comes from is that her master's work uh, and her PhD work actually were on uh, studying the Yucatan Peninsula and helped lead to the discovery of the Chicxulub impact crater. Uh, and so back in 1989, she started studying images of the peninsula and spotted geologic features indicative of a major impact site. She's actually led six expeditions to the area in order to investigate the site and learn more about how the impact shaped the land and affected the earth. She's worked on the OSIRIS-REx program, uh, which we've talked about uh, several times, and she is the lead scientist responsible for NASA's collaboration with the European Space Agency on the Venus Express mission and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency's Venus Climate Orbiter mission. So she's uh, doing a lot of things with Venus these days. <laughs> and, you know, it's so cool that she is, you know, not only a woman of color, but she is an immigrant as well. Uh, and she has excelled in her field uh just the way that anyone else would, because of course, women, again, are just as capable of doing great science as men. <laughs> um, and so she is very cool because, you know, she is definitely kind of that uh, almost sort of stereotypical uh, you know, she's kind of the, she's the kind of person you write a book about because, you know, she came to this to this, uh, to America with big dreams and she made her dreams come true. And so, you know, there is something a little cliche about that, but I think it's also important sometimes to say that, yeah, these people are out there and they do do amazing things. And, um, and so it's very important to remember that there are great people out there doing things despite the fact that they're immigrants, despite the fact that they're people of color, despite the fact that they're women and all of those things make it harder for them to succeed. And so uh, arguably, <laughs> women are actually doing more than men <laughs> because they have to do more in order to basically get the same kind of recognition. So a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found then when, that when looking at grants from the National Institutes of Health, grants that can be career-making and help launch young scientists' careers, groups led by men are awarded on average $41,000 more than those led by women. It gets even worse when you look at top universities. At Yale, women received $68,800 less, and at Brown, $76,500 less. Study after study has shown disparity in hiring, pay, prize money, speaking invitations, and even letters of recommendation 
for men over women. So this is not helping. Uh, and in fact, the NIH didn't even dispute the findings. They just simply noted, we have and continue to support efforts to understand the barriers and factors faced by women scientists and to implement interventions to overcome them. Now, again, it really can't be underestimated how important getting these grants can be. That first grant is monumentally important and determines your trajectory, said Caroline Abdallah, a head and neck specialist at the University of Southern California, who won her first NIH grant in 1998. It can help you get on the tenure track, and it gets you into that club of successful scientists who can produce their procure their own funding, which makes it easier to change jobs. Now, as for women who are getting grants but less money than men, it still puts them at a disadvantage. It makes it harder for them to hire graduate students and to purchase equipment. It means women are working harder with less money to get the same level as men, said Dr. Wodruff, a researcher at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. If we had the same footing, the engine of science would move a little faster towards the promise of basic science and medical cures. And so the study looked at 54,000 grants awarded between 2006 and 2017. Among the top 50 institutions funded by NIH, women received a median award of $94,000 versus $135,000 for men. At Big Ten schools like Penn State and Northwestern, female principal investigators earned a median grant of just $66,000 versus $148,000 for their male counterparts. Now, to be honest, women did excel in one sector. Women applying for individual research grants received almost $16,000 more than their male counterparts. However, such funding only comprises 11% of NIH grant monies. And so that is a big problem. There is a big gap there. And so we need to really be looking at that, especially in, uh, you know, grants to do medical research, because we know that there has historically been a bias towards looking at men as the primary um, example for disease models. And so, you know, for years, women didn't know about how they were differently affected by things. And, you know, uh, something that's sort of been going around recently that I I didn't know about, um, which made me very frustrated because it's the kind of thing that I feel like I should have known about um, and has only really been brought up to a lot of women because of a TV show, um, not even a TV show, a web-based show, um, the wonderful... Um, uh, show that is, um, it's based on Lindy West, very, very loosely based on a book by Lindy West, uh, called Shrill. Uh, and so it turns out that if you weigh more than 175 pounds, the, uh, morning after pill is, uh, much less likely to be effective for you. And when was the last time you heard that? Probably never. Um, and so, yeah, just little things like that make all of this so frustrating. And, um, yeah, so who, <laughs> all right, let's, let's, let's dial it back down and talk about, uh, let's do one more vignette of a really cool, uh, historical scientist. And then we'll wrap up with a really funny and interesting little story about a woman who has a really just an odd, but potentially really exciting um, feature. Anyways, let's, let's start. Let's get back here to uh, Ruby Hiros, um, or Hirose, probably. Um, and so she was a biochemist and bacterial bacteriologist whose research led to a groundbreaking treatments for infantile paralysis uh, and other illnesses, including polio, which is basically the same thing um, as infantile paralysis. It's a very closely related um, disease and diphtheria. 
She actually also helped hay fever sufferers uh, by helping increase the intensity of pollen extracts used to desensitize those affected. Now, uh, Hirose was born in 1904 in Auburn, Washington. She was the daughter of first-generation Japanese immigrants. Now, despite having been born in Washington, she and her siblings were not initially registered as American citizens, but rather as Japanese nationals. Now, this was actually part of what would be effective towards her family uh, during World War II. She was brought up in a in a fairly Christian household. Uh, she actually remained a devout Methodist throughout her life, which I think helped her. The reason I bring it up is because I think it helped her to kind of navigate through the world of, um, you know, being an immigrant in a very um, fraught area at the time. Uh, both her mother and her sister ended up dying of tuberculosis, uh, and her family basically continuously struggled in poverty uh, because they were forced onto plots of land that were not suitable for growing uh, due to their position as Japanese immigrants. And so as Japanese immigrants, they were not allowed to actually purchase land, and so they had to rent land. And usually, uh, you know, people didn't want to rent to them until unless it was bad land, basically. Uh, and so there's this great interview um, with her as a college student that is preserved in um, the library in, uh, I think it's the University of California. And so I just wanted to read this kind of excerpt from it because I thought it was really fascinating. The land is too low, she explained. It is poorly drained and under a heavy debt so that they cannot afford to install a better drainage system. Mother did not want to go on to this place in the beginning, but we had no other place to go. The place we were on was good, but the owner could not meet a mortgage on it, and he had to lose the place, and of course we had to move. Other Japanese have tried to farm the place we are on now, and they all failed. So Mother did not see how we could hope to succeed, but it was the only place we could find, so we took it. We have to pay $45 an acre rent, and that is pretty high for such poor land. Uh, and so, yeah, it's pretty frustrating to read that and see how badly, um, you know, they were treated. And um, there was at one point her father actually bought some land in her name because she was actually considered eventually they she was considered a citizen because she had actually been born in America but her dad still couldn't buy land and uh it's funny cuz when she's a college student there's actually another little snippet about this later on where she talks about it and she says I don't know why he bought us this land it's ridiculously bad land but um I think that he had bought it um in order to have something even though it wasn't very good land, he still wanted something and he bought it in their names because he couldn't buy it in his own. Um, but it's really interesting to see how she wasn't quite understanding that as a, you know, as a young person. Um, and so anyways, uh, she was the first child of uh, such immigrants. Uh, and so the, the these immigrants, these second generation um, Japanese were called um, the Nisei. And uh, so she was the first in the region to earn a graduate degree. And uh, in college, she also actually ended up meeting up with a bunch of other Nisei and people who were interested in dealing with the problems that they were having. So they wrote this report, a um, bunch of Japanese American students, basically about kind of the growing pains. Um, you know, they didn't have the language that we have now, but, you know, basically how they were having these cultural clashes and growing pains with being immigrants who wanted to both honor their parents and be American. Um, and so, you know, there were all these differences between themselves. They were, you know, uh, spoke English as a first language, though they mostly did also speak Japanese. Um, you know, a lot of their parents never, a lot of their um, parents didn't speak English very well. Um, her father didn't learn how to speak English, um, but her mother never did. Um, and so, you know, they were trying to figure out how to both continue to be part of their culture, but also really um, assimilate into America in a way 
that they wouldn't be treated the way that their parents were, unfortunately, was part of the sort of struggle there was that they wanted to be American. Um, and if you've ever seen, um, the George Takai, uh, documentary or not documentary, the George Takai, um, musical, um, about that's loosely based on his, um, family's experience, uh, that has some of that in there. I cannot remember what it's called offhand. I remember seeing it at Cinemark and just, oh, it was gut-wrenching. But um, anyways, uh, he there's some of that where, you know, one of the, the, the son basically is like, I just want to be a regular American. And so she was dealing with that sort of stuff. And so she helped write this report. And part of the suggestions were to emphasize higher education and religion, which were definitely things where she personally found solace. Um, so yeah, it was really, her story is really interesting. Um, but getting back to sort of her more, uh, work, her work life, she earned her PhD in chemistry from the University of Cincinnati in 1932 and continued to work at the university until she was hired in 1938 for the William S. Merrill Company. And that's where she worked on serums and antitoxins. In 1930, she wrote a pharmaceutical study of the medicinal herb gold seal, or golden seal, excuse me. Uh, and that's really interesting because it's one of the specimens that was brought back by Lewis and Clark during their expedition. So that's kind of cool. Now, one of the things about uh, Hiroshi is that there's a really famous picture of her uh, that is in the Smithsonian, and it's from around 1939, 1940. And I'm going to read the entire um, caption to you because it's really interesting. A hay fever, fever sufferer herself, Dr. R. Hiroshi, American-born Japanese girl scientist on the research staff of the William S. Merrill Biological Laboratories, has found a way to improve the pollen extracts used to desensitize hay fever sufferers. The idea of treating the pollen with alum to increase its effectiveness developed while Dr. Hyros was working on alum precipitated toxoid for protection against diphtheria. Now, note the reference to her as a, quote, Japanese girl scientist, rather than as a woman or simply a scientist. I mean, Japanese girl scientist makes me think of an anime. Um, and she was not that. She was a very, um, you know, very important, very good scientist who was doing a really important work. And it just makes me very sad uh, to have her described that way. Um, but in 1940, she was just one of 10 women out of the 300 strong membership of the 1940 convention for the American Chemical Society. Uh, but she was one of 10 women who were recognized for their accomplishments. Um, and at the beginning of World War II, she, start, she started working with the Kettering Laboratory of Applied Physiology at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, also at the University of Cincinnati Department of Science, teaching microbiology and public health, and at the University of Indiana, as well as doing bacteriological work for several local veterans hospitals. So she was doing a lot of things. Um, at the University of Cincinnati, she did cancer research. She was just doing all of these amazing things. At the same time, her family, her father and two of her siblings were interred in a camp uh, for the grave sin of simply being Japanese American and living near the coast. Ruby was only spared, not because she was this amazing scientist, not because of anything having to do with her, but simply because she lived in the interior of the country and therefore wasn't considered a threat. Uh, she eventually moved to Pennsylvania, uh, where she died, having never married, on October 7th, 1960. Her surviving family members had her buried back at home in Auburn, Washington. Um, and I think that's pretty cool, if not also incredibly bittersweet. Um, but yeah, she was amazing. And again, another woman who should be much more well known. All right, let's wrap up tonight with a completely different story. Uh, this woman is not a scientist, but has a remarkable talent that scientists want to be able to examine and hopefully use in the future. 
Joy Milne can tell if someone will develop Parkinson's disease by the way that they smell. Now, right now, there is no standard diagnostic test for the disease, but Joy's unique talent might someday lead to one. And so apparently Joy began smelling a musky odor on her husband 10 years before he was diagnosed with the disease. When she went to a meeting with other Parkinson sufferers, she realized that the smell and the disease were linked. Since then, researchers have been trying to find out exactly what it is that she smells. They know it's linked to sebum, the oily secretion that helps our skin and hair naturally moisturize, and which people with Parkinson's often produce in greater abundance. But the researchers wanted to know exactly what biomarkers Joy was detecting, so they used mass spectrometry to extract the individual compounds. We designed some experiments to mimic what Joy does, to use a mass spectrometer to do what Joy can do when she smells these things on people with Parkinson's, one of the team, Perdita Barron, from the University of Manchester in the UK, told the BBC. And so Joy was presented with swabs from 64 volunteers, some with the disease and some without. The researchers found that those with the disease had increased levels of hyperic acid, eosinsane, octenoconal, and other biomarkers in their sebum. This could have a huge impact not only for earlier and conclusive diagnosis, but also help patients monitor the effect of therapy, says Barron. Now, there's no cure for the disease, but early diagnosis can be helpful. And of course, any knowledge that we learn about diseases can potentially lead to better treatments or even cures. What we might hope is if we can diagnose people earlier, before the motor systems symptoms come in, that there will be treatments that can prevent the disease spreading, he told the BBC. Uh, she told the BBC, excuse me. So that's really the ultimate ambition. And what's interesting <laughs> to sort of cap this off is that Joy thinks that she might be able to spell other diseases as well. Uh, so her next trial will be to determine whether or not people have tuberculosis. <laughs> so yeah, it's a fascinating, weird story. All right. So that is me for this week. And so I will be back next week with more weird and wonderful uh, science news and uh, opinions. Okay, have a great night. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.